him back. <laughs> that seems like a little thing, but it really makes us happy when you come back. <laughs> All right, welcome to week two. Timothy, week two. Okay, tonight we are going to be diving into Paul's second letter to, the Tim- to Timothy. Hopefully you had a chance to at least read through that whole letter this week in your homework time. Perhaps you were able to pick up on the differences between this letter and Paul's first letter to, the, to Timothy. His first letter, as many of you know, um, was very instructional, right? Paul is outlining for Timothy, as the pastor of that church in Ephesus, how the church was to behave and how it was to function. And he exhorted him to keep the doctrine pure and to stay immersed in in the scriptures. But Paul's second letter to Timothy has a really different tone to it. This is the last letter that Paul wrote. And we know that he is in prison in Rome. He's had about five years between this imprisonment and his previous imprisonment there in Rome. At that time, he was under house arrest. So he was able to work and meet with people, and write, um, share the gospel. But this imprisonment is different. At that time, he was released in about 62 AD, and he had that time time frame there uh, to do more work. And that was the time frame when he wrote his first letter to Timothy and the letter to Titus, which we're going to study later this semester. But in 64 AD, as we talked about last week, was the Great Fire in Rome. So Tacitus, who was a first century historian, does document that Nero is known to have set that fire. But Nero, of course, he needed to have the blame be on someone else, and so he put the blame on the Christians, who were already a despised group of people. And Nero was really known for his cruelty. Uh, some of the examples that you can read about in history, one of them, they're, they're just awful. And one of them is that he would dip the Christians alive in tar and then set them on fire and use them for torches in his gardens to light the gardens. It's just severe, severe persecution. So in the, in the aftermath of that, um, Paul was rearrested in 67 AD, but this time he's placed in a dungeon. He's in a hole in the ground. It was an old cistern. Many believe that he was in the Mamertine prison Um, It was not used for long-term imprisonments. It was used for those awaiting execution. Paul also mentions in his letter to Timothy that he's in chains. So he's cold. It's damp there, probably dark. And it's just important for us to know this context, as Paul talks quite a lot in this letter about suffering. And he's not talking about something that might happen or that will happen in the future. Paul is talking about suffering as he is experiencing it currently. He is suffering for the gospel. And he knows that the sentence of death is upon him. So Paul is writing his final letter. He's writing a letter to Timothy. Of course, he wants Timothy to come. He wants him to come before winter, he says, before the sailing season ends. Come. He longs to see him. But he's aware that Timothy might not get there before his life is taken from him. So he writes this letter with all the last things he wants to say. And you know, we know stories of people that knew they were going to die. And what is it that they think about? They think about who is it that I need to talk to? And what is it that I need to say to them? There are certain things that are just so important. You can't not say them. And this is what Paul is doing in this letter. It doesn't give more importance to this letter compared to Paul's other letters, but it is important for us to know the context of why he is writing these things to Timothy. Now, Timothy, as we know, is a young man that Paul had discipled and spent so much time with him and to invest in his life so that Timothy could carry on the work of Paul once he's gone. The work was proclaiming the truth of who Christ Jesus was or is. Paul didn't invest himself in anyone else more than Timothy. He might not have even been the most obvious choice as far as worldly standards of a leader in a church, especially to send him to a church that was struggling so much with false teaching and legalism. And he evidently had some health issues. 
You know, there's some uh, clues in these two letters that tell us a little bit more about Timothy. He might have been timid, maybe emotional, worrisome, maybe that he couldn't do this work alone without Paul. But God, God had given Paul a compassion for this young man so that he could see that thing in Timothy that God was going to use in the work of gospel ministry. So that's our context. So before we get into the passage for tonight, let's pray. Father, we're grateful that we can gather together and study your word. I pray you will help us to come humbly before you. I pray that you would give us ears to hear the message that you have for each one of us. I pray that you will give me calmness in my mind and heart and clarity and thought and speech. But Lord, we just look to you to teach us. In your name I ask, amen. All right, so I'm going to read our passage for tonight. We're going to start in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. You can follow along in your Bibles or in your study guides. So 2 Timothy 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So Paul opens his letter in the typical style of ancient letter writing. It's not like our letters we write today. In their greetings, their letters opened with the author's name. Um, he identifies himself, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus. So this is a typical way that Paul began most of his letters. Out of the 13 letters that he wrote in the New Testament, he called himself an apostle in all but four of them. And the word apostle uh, in the Greek literally means one sent forth. The word is also used of the Lord Jesus by the author of the Hebrews to describe his being sent forth. Hebrews 3.1 says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And Jesus himself in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. An apostle is one sent forth. The 12 disciples chosen by the Lord for special training were called apostles. In Luke 16, 13, we read this, And when day came, he, Jesus, called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. They were sent forth. An apostle is a delegate, a messenger, one sent forth with orders. It's an ambassador, a person who represents the one who is commissioning him. And Paul was indeed commissioned directly by the Lord himself on that road to Damascus when he stopped Paul on his way to arrest Christians in that city. And we know that Paul was commissioned by God to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. In Acts 9.15, God had told Ananias about Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and he's very clear in, in his writing of whose plan this was, right? He says it's by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul had set out to Damascus with a purpose in mind, right? He had set out to stop the spread of the gospel, but it was God's will. It was God's purpose to instead choose Paul to indeed do the exact opposite, to spread the very gospel that he had intended to stop. 
And remember in 1 Timothy 1, Paul had given his testimony, and he said this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, Paul knew that he didn't deserve such an appointment, but it was the grace and mercy of God that had brought him to that place. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Here in this second letter to Timothy is the only time Paul uses that exact phrase, the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Now remember where Paul is when he writes these words. He's in a cold, damp, probably dark dungeon, awaiting execution. And yet here he is writing about the promise of life. It's all part of God's plan. Life, true life. That is what Christ Jesus came to bring. And this is the gospel message that Paul had been preaching. John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. In John 17.3, that tells us that eternal life is knowing the true God and Jesus Christ. And Paul is looking at the end of his life And yet he's clinging to the promise of life that can only be found in Christ Jesus. Jesus also said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The truth is, we will all die. Unless the Lord returns in our lifetime, we will face death. Does the promise of life in Jesus mean that we will be spared death? No. But if we trust in him as Savior, then we will be spared the eternal judgment, spiritual and eternal death. That is reserved for those who reject Christ as Savior. We know that we will die. We know that there is suffering in this life. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we will escape hardship or danger or illness or death. But we remember that this life is not all there is. There is a life yet to come after we die. Following Jesus is not about preserving the life we have here on earth. To the contrary, it is about dying to ourselves, our pride, our flesh, and our sins. And then after that death, living for eternity with our creator. This is what the Apostle Paul is holding on to. He's holding fast to the promise of life, even after his earthly life is ended. And I had to wonder if the Paul was, had thought about Stephen as he was waiting his own execution. Paul had approved Of Stephen's execution, not then understanding the truth of what Stephen believed. We read that story in Acts chapter 7, and Stephen, right before he was stoned to death, had gazed up into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And as they were stoning him, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen anticipated being in the very presence of Jesus, the very moment that he breathed his last on earth. And the Apostle Paul was witness to that event. I wonder if he thought back to that now as he is waiting his own passing from the present life to the heavenly realm to be in the presence of Jesus. And Paul did long to be in the presence of the Lord. He wrote about that in his letter to the Philippians. We read that Paul, even though he was imprisoned under house arrest, he was hoping to be released. But even if he wasn't and he was to be killed, his desire was that Christ would be honored, whether in his life or by, in his death. And he wrote this to that, in that letter. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. The promise of life in Christ Jesus is free to any who would turn from their sin and believe in him who gave his life so that we could live. 
Now back to our passage in verse two, we see the recipient of this letter to Timothy, my beloved child. He's writing to this young man that he cares so much about. No, he's not his biological father, but he's a spiritual father to Timothy. In the first letter, he had addressed him as his true child in the faith. And we really can see in his words, there's warmth and love in his voice as he addresses Timothy here. According to Acts chapter 16, Paul met Timothy while he was traveling through Lystra. Paul discovered that Timothy was the son of a believing Jewess and a Greek father and that people spoke very highly of him. And the seeds of gospel truth were sown into the heart of Timothy. The instruction that he received in childhood, the faith of his mother and his grandmother, traveling around with Paul and learning from him, as well as seeing Paul suffer, willingly suffer, hardship and persecution, had resulted in his own full conviction that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And Paul writes, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, this is the same greeting that Paul wrote to Timothy in his first letter. Grace and peace are included in every other letter that Paul wrote, but in his two letters to Timothy, we see he added mercy. Now, grace, um, the Greek word for grace is charis, which means unmerited favor or the favor of God. Grace is not something that anyone can earn. We deserve nothing good from God. God does not owe us any good thing. What, we, what good we experience is a, a result of the grace of God. It's a gift. And peace, peace is a state of tranquility or quietness of soul or spirit that transcends circumstances. So no matter what's happening in your life, there's this tranquility in your, in your heart. Philippians 4, 7 says that the peace of God surpasses our understanding and will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Sometimes you'll hear someone say, I had this peace. I don't know how to explain it, right? It surpasses our understanding. And mercy. Mercy is the outward manifestation of pity. It assumes need on the part of him who receives it and resources adequate to meet that need on the part of him who shows it. That's from Vine's Expository Dictionary. Mercy has to do with kindness and compassion. It is often spoken of in the context of God's not punishing us as our sins deserve. It's kind of curious why Paul includes mercy as part of the blessing that he bestows over Timothy. Most commentators believe that the reason is because Timothy was a pastor, and mercy is a key pastoral ingredient, as it's fundamental to personal salvation. So Timothy needs the blessing of mercy, both for himself and for those he is ministering to in the work of evangelism and in the care of souls. Okay, verse 3, he says, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestor, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy Paul often starts his letters with a prayer, and so he does here. He thanks God whom he serves, and he mentions ancestors. Who are these ancestors? Well, the Greek word used here actually denotes forefathers. So Paul is most likely talking about his own parents or his own lineage. Though we are not given details in scripture or in history even about Paul's family, we can understand through the words that he chose to use that Paul is talking about his own true forefathers, those Jews before Paul's time that genuinely followed God with a pure heart and not in the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Now keep in mind, Paul was born to devout Jews, that his family was Hebrew and they were devout Jews. But Paul then was sent off to study under a, a prominent um, Pharisee in Jerusalem. And so he kind of got all caught up in the way the Pharisees thought, right? Because he was a student. So we have to keep in mind that the Pharisees depended on keeping the law of Moses in order to be accepted by God. They were seeking their own righteousness. This was how Paul lived. Um, he was zealous for the law, and his mission had been to keep Judaism pure. 
And the law of Moses wasn't given for the sake of law. It was given for the sake of relationship. God provided the law to help his people know how to live in a holy manner so that they could be in relationship with him. But they'd lost sight of that. The Pharisees were more concerned about keeping the rules. We talked last week about how they padded the law, even to be sure that they didn't break any of the law. But this isn't necessarily how all Jews viewed the law. So Paul talks about his ancestors, his own lineage. But how did Paul serve God after his conversion? With a clear conscience. Now let's recall what Paul wrote in his first letter to Timothy in 1.13. He says that he was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent. The NIV uses the term violent man. Generally speaking, Paul was hateful towards Christ and his followers and persecuted them violently. So how is it that Paul can say in his second letter that he serves God with a clear conscience? Well, in his first letter, he had also stated that he was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Formerly. Because you see, Paul is no longer that same man. Christ Jesus stopped Paul in his tracks on the way to Damascus. And now he's a changed man. A new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. His heart of stone was removed and he was given a heart of flesh and the spirit of God now resides within him. And because of that, Paul can say that he serves God with a clear conscience. We learned in our study of 1 Timothy that the word conscience means uh, co-knowledge. It's a self-awareness with God always in the equation. It's a moral awareness or moral consciousness. The conscience, which we each have, reacts when one's actions, thoughts, and words either conform to or are contrary to a standard of right and wrong. We feel either guilt or peace, depending on how we act according to what the standard is. Conscience is actually God-given capacity for human beings to exercise self-evaluation. In Acts 24, 16, Paul says, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And he does this by self-examination. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says, Examine yourselves to see whether you were in the faith. Test yourselves. Another reference to conscience in the New Testament is a conscience that has been seared. And we studied this uh, last semester in 1 Timothy. It's uh, rendered insensitive as though it has been cauterized with a hot iron. Such a conscience is hardened and calloused, no longer feeling anything. A person with a seared conscience no longer listens to its promptings. And he can sin with abandon and delude himself into thinking that all is well with his soul and treat others insensitively and without compassion. As Christians, we are to keep our consciences clear by obeying God and keeping our relationship with him in good standing from our perspective. We do this by the application of the word of God, renewing and softening our hearts continually before him. So what Paul is saying here is that he serves God with a clear conscience. How does he maintain that? How does he not slip back into thinking about how awful he was before he became a Christian? Before Christ met him on that road to Damascus? Well, the answer is in the self-awareness with God, always in the equation. You see, Paul is aware of his natural state, of his flesh. In 1 Timothy 1, we had studied his testimony. In verse 13, he wrote, But I received mercy Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now, Paul didn't say he was the foremost or the worst, right? He says he is the foremost or the worst of sinners. He understood that already, but not yet, condition of our hearts as we long as long as we live in these bodies on this earth in our flesh in our human nature we are prone to sin we continually carry around the propensity to, to sin in our hearts 
But Paul says that he received mercy, and the grace of Christ Jesus overflowed for him. Christ came to save sinners. And after salvation, when we are given a new heart, we are no longer slaves to sin. Though the sinful flesh still dwells with us, we have also been given a new spirit, and we have the ability to turn from sin and not give into it. But it remains a struggle, even for Paul. Listen to what he says in Romans 7, 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but the very thing that I hate. And then in verse 18, he said, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Sin continues in us on this side of heaven. But does that render us hopeless? Did it, was Paul hopeless? He goes on to say in Romans 7, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he breaks into worship. Thanks be to God. It'll be Jesus Christ, our Lord. So before salvation, Paul had no ability to see that his actions were in complete opposition to the law of God. Remember that he was an enemy of God and of the gospel. And he believed that what he was doing was completely right. But after Jesus Christ opened his spiritually blind eyes and changed his heart, then Paul could see the struggle between his own flesh and the new spirit that dwelt within him. There was a war waging inside of him. And that same war wages in each one of us, doesn't it? But what is the remedy? Self-examination. We continually look into the law of God, which is a mirror that will show us our sin and our need for the cleansing power of the blood of Christ Jesus. We test ourselves. We check our hearts. Is there sin abiding there? Paul challenges Timothy to do a self-assessment as well, as we'll see. Most of you know the story of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. The first of these theses was this. When our Lord Jesus said repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life should be repentance. The whole of our life needs to be repentant. repentance. True Christian repentance involves heartfelt conviction of sin, a contrition over the offense to God, a turning away from the sinful life and turning towards a God-honoring way of life. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, um, it says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. We repent in faith. We repent in faith, believing that, yes, if we repent, our sins will be blotted out. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Paul knew that his sins were blotted out. This is why he could say that he served God with a clear conscience. So Paul goes on in verse 3, I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Paul is a praying man. He's praying for Timothy constantly, day and night. Timothy is always on his mind, especially now that Paul knows that his time is drawing short, to an, it'll be coming to an end, and Timothy is going to carry on the work uh, which Paul began. And, but I want us to think about this on a more personal level for Paul. You know, Paul's been a busy man. He's been a really busy man. He's been traveling all around that known world. He's been planting churches and teaching in synagogues. He's mentoring young pastors. His life is full. And now here he sits. He's in a mostly dark place. He's in chains. 
and all he can do is pray. I wonder if he felt a bit useless, a bit like he wasn't really doing anything for the spread of the gospel. But he's praying day and night, night and day. We must never think of prayer as something that's not as important. Never, ever. Prayer is often the very work that God has sent us to do. Paul's a praying man. And he says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Now, we're not exactly sure what tears Paul is remembering. It could be the tears that we read about in Acts chapter 20, after Paul had shared with the elders there in Ephesus that he was going to go back to Jerusalem. And they didn't want him to go because they knew that the Jews, right, the ruling uh, council there in Jerusalem, they were still out to get Paul and they wanted him dead. So they feared that he would be killed if he would go. So they didn't want him to go, but he needed to go. So there were tears shed. Could have been those tears. Or perhaps there were tears shed by Timothy when he was commissioned to pastor the church in Ephesus. When Paul left him in Ephesus to do the difficult work needed there, perhaps Timothy shed tears thinking that he didn't want to do this uh, alone without Paul. Maybe he didn't just want to not be with Paul. They had worked together for such a very long time. Whatever the reason for those tears, Paul is remembering them, and it causes a longing in him to see Timothy again. This was his child in the faith. There was a close bond between these two men as they'd worked side by side in gospel ministry. And right now, Paul is sitting in a cold, damp dungeon, and he longs to see Timothy again. I mean, he's got important things to say to him before his execution comes. And he would just be filled with joy if he could see him again. But he goes on to say, as he's writing, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. The word dwelt or dwells in the Greek also translates lived. Lived in your grandmother Lois, and I am sure lives in you as well. This was a living faith that Paul had seen first in his mother and grandmother. In his remembering of Timothy's tears, he's also remembering the sincere faith, his, his authenticity. I have no one else like Timothy, he said in Philippians 2. So it's sincere, sincere faith. Sincere means genuine in feeling. And the word sincere also stresses um, an absence of hypocrisy or any falsifying <laughs> embellishment or exaggeration. So if you recall from our study of Matthew several years ago, we learned that the word hypocrite in the ancient world was first used for actors who would don a mask and play a part. They didn't sit in the makeup chair and get all makeup right on their face. They put a mask on and they played a part. So their real self was behind the mask. So hence, that's how we get the word hypocrite in the way we use it today. When Paul, what Paul sees in Timothy is that there is no evidence of hypocrisy in him. His faith is genuine, sincere. He's the real deal. And Paul gives credit for the development of this sincere faith to his mother and his grandmother. They were believing Jews, and they raised Timothy in the scriptures, as we'll read later on in this letter. And this really gives us encouragement, doesn't it? As godly women, we need to not ignore the importance of teaching our children and our grandchildren about the things of God. We read to them, we pray with them, we pray over them, even when they're taller than you. We teach them to pray. Do you suppose that Eunice and Lois had any idea that they were raising a man that God would use to lead a church someday? Certainly not but they were diligent in teaching him the scriptures. And ladies, we need to take that to heart. We don't know how God is going to use our children someday. And Paul saw this genuine faith both in Timothy's mother and grandmother, and he's confident. He says, I am sure that this same faith now dwells in him as well. And for this reason, he says in verse 6, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 
Paul starts out in verse 6, for this reason. Well, what reason? What has Paul just been talking about? Timothy's sincere faith, his genuine faith. He's been thinking about and praying for Timothy, and he wants to see him before his execution. But due to the faith that he knows is in Timothy, and he's confident of his faith, he says, for this reason. He reminds him to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in him through the laying on of my hands. We do not know exactly what that gift is that Paul's referring to here. In 1 Timothy 4.14, he wrote this, Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, but we do see two things from these two passages, that, that A, gifts are given by God, and B, gifts are recognized by others. So it's not necessarily important what you think your gifts are, but rather, what do other people see in you? What gifts do they see in you? Do they see a loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ? Do they see a spirit of humility and service to Christ and to his work? That's what Paul could see in Timothy. Again, we do not know exactly what the gift is that Paul is referring to here. But could this have been the time that Timothy shed so many tears? The prospect of being called to ministry to be found worthy to carry the gospel forth and to follow in the footsteps of Paul, which that surely would have been a heavy load to carry. And if Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus and went on to Macedonia without him, perhaps Timothy felt daunted to shoulder this responsibility alone. But why aren't we told what this gift is? I mean, we're given several lists of gifts, spiritual gifts in Scripture, right? But why didn't Paul, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, tell us what Timothy's gift was? I mean, don't you want to know? I want to know. Because the focus of this passage isn't on the gift. The passage is focusing on what we are to do, what Timothy is to do with his gift. That's our focus as well. What do we do? With the gifts that God has given us. As believers, we're each given a gift. We're not gifted in the same way. The gifts are given so that the church can be built up and believers encouraged in the faith and in the work of making disciples. But my gifts will be different from your gifts, and your gifts are different from mine. God doesn't make cutter, cookie-cutter Christians. We're not all the same. But what we learn in 2 Timothy is that each one of us needs to attend to our gift. So what does Paul say? Fan into flame the gift of God. It gives us a picture of a fire that may be about to go out. Now, if you've ever sat around a campfire or a fire pit or your fireplace or wood stove, you know that the fire needs to be attended to, right? The wood burns down and then as the fuel is all used up, the fire starts to go down. And if you don't add more fuel, the fire will indeed go out. So you need to add another log. And if the embers are really, really low, you may need to blow on those embers to get them to burn again. And so Paul said, remember and stir up this gift that is in you that you received when the hands of the elders were laid on you and you were prayed over. It is possible for us to neglect the gifts of, the gifts of God in our lives but God did not give us these gifts to be neglected. He gave us these gifts to be used. And so Paul's exhortation to Timothy, stir up that gift that is in you, fan into flame that gift of God. He's saying to begin to exercise it again. By faith, Timothy, begin to exercise this gift of the Spirit that God gave to you. Other translations use words like rekindle, Kindle afresh, stir up, keep ablaze. So this is a phrase that denotes action. Action is needed to keep a fire ablaze. This is a, um, excuse me, Timothy is to take action here in order to get this fire that he apparently had started out with to get it burning again. In the previous letter, Paul had instructed Timothy on some actions that he was to persist in. So from chapter 4, a few of these are, Rather, train yourself for godliness. 
For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And then again, set the believers an example in conduct, in speech, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. And then he said, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And at the end, near the end of uh, the letter, the first letter, he wrote this, that Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. So those are all action things. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle Paul recorded the words of letters that Jesus Christ wrote to the seven churches that were in that region and that time. And we read these words in chapter 2 of Revelation. They were written specifically to the church in Ephesus. These are the words of Jesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are patiently enduring and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but... I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. So this was a church that was working hard, right? They're bearing up under suffering and persecution, and they're working to keep themselves separate from those who are evil. But Jesus' words to them are this, you have left your first love. The love that they had for Christ and for the gospel had gotten misplaced or pushed aside, perhaps for what they saw as more important work of ministry. It seems that they were focused on the work that needed to be done. And sometimes we can get really distracted even by good things in the work of the Lord and yet neglect the very things that he gave us, the very gifts that he gave us in order to do that work. And so Paul is exhorting Timothy to attend to, to give special attention to the gift that God gave him. And then in verse 7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now evidently, Timothy became a little fearful in the exercise of this gift. This is indeed a tool that Satan uses often, right, to discourage us in the exercising of our gifts. Fear. Ooh, what will people think? We don't know exactly what Timothy was fearful of. There may be a clue in the beginning of next week's passage as Paul begins to talk a lot about suffering and about not being ashamed. Keep in mind that the cultural context in which Paul's writing this letter, he's in prison, about to be executed, and Christians are under intense persecution. It's not a time to be timid about your faith or about preaching the truth of the gospel, but it very well may be a time that would inspire fear in Timothy rather than courage. And Paul reminds him that God didn't give him, rather specifically, he says, us. God didn't give us a spirit of fear. Paul includes himself in that phrase. Paul, the one who knows that his own time is limited. Timothy, I get it. This is a difficult time. We're going to suffer. We may even die for this gospel that we proclaim. But God gave us not a spirit of fear. Rather, we are empowered by the Spirit of God. So stand firm, Timothy, and continue to hold fast to the truth. He encourages Timothy not to depend on himself, on his own strength, but to have confidence in God. And what did God give? Gave a spirit of power and love and self-control. So power, the Greek word here literally means strength or ability. So neither Paul nor Timothy nor us are going to need to do this work alone in our own strength. You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, none of that. The power of God is uh, what enables us. Love. The word here, the Greek word here is agape. It's that love that God has for his people. It originates with God. And it was exhibited by Christ Jesus when he willingly gave his life on the cross to bear our punishment. 
in order to bring us to God. And it's the foundation of the kind of love that we are to have towards our fellow believers. 1 John 4, 7 through 10 just explains it pretty good. I'm going to read it. Beloved, let us love one another. For agape love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is agape love. In this, the agape love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is agape love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then self-control. Some translations use the word sound mind. It denotes a mind that is calm and controlled by discipline. Uh, Also moderation. So instead of fear, God, through the Holy Spirit, has equipped Timothy, and you and me as well, with the strength and ability to do the work that he's given us to do. Um, The love with which to understand what it means to be a recipient of the grace and mercy of God and to compel others to embrace this limitless love as well. And finally, with self-control, which involves discipline that will help, excuse me, that will help to firm up our faith and enable us to fan into flame the gift that God gave us. And Paul will go on in this letter to talk of suffering and persecution and the importance of the scriptures in the life of the believer as well as the church. And understanding the context helps us to understand the meaning of these words and to us and to apply them to our lives as well. So what do these words mean to us? To answer that question, I'm going to go back to the meaning of the word apostle. Specifically, let's think about the fact that Jesus was also called an apostle by the writer to the Hebrews. Hebrews 3.1, I'll read it again. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. An apostle, one sent forth. The Father sent his Son. John 3.16 and 17 tells us why. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus also came to show us what it looked like to keep the law perfectly. He came to fulfill the law, not abolish it. And how did he do this? I mean, what does that look like? So the writer of the Hebrews also stated in that verse that I read that Jesus is also the high priest of our confession. When the law was given... Man, of course, was unable to keep the law. Because of sinful human nature, they just were not able to perfectly obey the law. But God is holy and cannot be in the presence of sin. So a provision needed to be made since the law was given for the sake of relationship. Sin needed to be covered or atoned for, and this required a blood sacrifice. Just like God killed an animal to make coverings for Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame, blood was spilt. So God gave the ceremonial law, the sacrificial system, in order for the sins of the people to be covered. God appointed priests to perform the duties of sacrificing the animals. And this happened continually, day in and day out, blood was shed to cover sin. Now, the high priest, he was the only one who could enter into the holy of holies. In the temple, there was a holy place and the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was with the mercy seat that was there. And there was a curtain, a thick curtain that that hung there. It separated those two places. That was where God's presence came. So the high priest was the only one that could go in and stand in God's presence. And he did this as a representative of the people. However, because of his own sin, he himself needed to make a sacrifice for his own sin. 
After his sin was confessed and the appropriate sacrifice made, only then could he enter the Holy of Holies. And he was to sprinkle blood on the, of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. And he also carried a censer, which had incense on it, which represented his prayers on behalf of the people of Israel. Now, this only happened one time a year, once a year, on the Day of Atonement. The high priest was the only one that could enter the most holy place, and only once a year. And Hebrews tells us that these things that God had put into place were but a shadow of things to come. What things? Enter Jesus. Hebrews calls Jesus our great high priest. God sent Jesus into the world. He took on flesh so that he could be our representative but he was also truly God, truly divine, perfect, sinless, so that he could be the perfect sacrifice as well. Jesus didn't need to make a sacrifice for his own sin, but he offered himself as the sacrifice for our sin. He was the appropriate sacrifice as being truly man and truly God. And his blood was shed to cover the sins of his people. And this was the last sacrifice needed. No more would we need to have sacrifices made to cover our sins day in and day out. It's done. It's finished. The work is complete. And when Jesus died, the curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two from top to bottom, opening for us the way to the th that we could approach the throne of God ourselves through the blood of Jesus that covers our sin. So and now Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, and guess what he's doing? He's making intercession for us. He's praying for us. So when we look at these passages, like the one in 2 Timothy, and we ask, what does this mean to us now? We must realize that it's only through the blood of Jesus that grace and mercy and peace can be ours. We must understand that it's only through the blood of Jesus that we can have the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. It is only through the blood of Jesus that we can have a clear conscience. It's only through his blood that we can have a sincere, genuine faith. Only through his blood will we receive gifts since we are then his children. And it's through the blood of Jesus that we can operate not out of fear, and only through his blood will we walk by the Spirit in power and love and self-control. So let us come boldly before the throne of grace, where we will find mercy in our time of need. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful beyond words, beyond even understanding, for the sacrifice that your Son made on our behalf. Lord, may that truth sink deep into our hearts and our minds. May we look at ourselves in the light of your word and in the light of your son and turn from our sin and commit ourselves to you to live holy lives unto you. Change us, Lord Jesus, from the inside out because we can't do this on our own. The war continues to wage within us. And may we long to see your son one day face to face when we know that it was because of his sacrifice that we can stand before you. Lord, we're just grateful for your word, for the truth in it for us. I ask that you would bless us this week as we continue to study your word. In Jesus' name, amen.